too. If you come at 11, you can enjoy the taste of Marietta for sure. Uh, but we will not be gathering uh, then. This is Easter, obviously a day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. You may be skeptical this morning. That's totally understandable. People do not come back from the grave. And so everything we're doing is based on the, for us, the fact, uh, for you maybe the assumption that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So it's normal to be skeptical of that. If you are, let me give you a couple of things maybe to, ha- to hang on to, some handholds as we uh, begin to look at Jesus' resurrection One question I would encourage you to ask is why. Why are you skeptical? There's two major reasons. Some people have intellectual objections to the the resurrection, to Jesus, to Christianity, to the Bible, that whole world. Some people, it doesn't compute uh, mentally for them. And again, obviously the resurrection is a big deal. That's not something that normally happens. And so it's easy to say, that's just a legend or a myth. It's, It's made up. Other people have personal objections. Uh, which really have nothing to do with their intellect at all. We'll get to that in a second. If your issues are primarily intellectual, for you it just doesn't necessarily make sense. Let me encourage you to investigate. You investigate if you're going to buy a car. You investigate if you're going to buy a house. You investigate what school you're going to put your kids into. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? That, to me, is the most important question anybody's ever going to have to answer. It's worth investigating. So for you, if there's some intellectual resistance to Jesus, to the resurrection, to the gospel, I would encourage you to investigate three facts. You don't have to believe the Bible to grab onto these. Jesus was crucified in the mid-30s AD in Jerusalem. Non-Christian sources will tell you that. It happened within a handful of months, the mid-30s AD, the Christian church formed in Jerusalem, just a handful of miles from where Jesus was crucified. Third thing, this church formed around the message that Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm going to look at some passages here in Scripture, but there are places, non-Christian sources, that will tell you the same thing. Jesus was crucified, the church was formed, and the church formed around this message that Jesus was raised from the dead. This is the first sermon ever preached by Peter. Fellow fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Second sermon. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disavowed him before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer, that's Barabbas, be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Last one. It's the third sermon that we see preached. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. That's the content. Jesus was raised from the dead that led to the church that was formed in the exact place where Jesus was crucified. The, the, uh, the Jewish leaders, for religious reasons, the Roman leaders, for political reasons, had every motivation to suppress this message. They get nothing out of this message going forth that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Easiest way to stop the message is to produce the body. Everybody knows where he's buried. Let's just produce it. They don't. Why? Because it's not there. So the choices are, he either was raised from the dead or somebody stole it. Who steals it? 
Only people who have any possible motivation would be the disciples. They're trying to carry on Jesus' legacy, this guy who they'd spent three years following and invested in, and they really wanted him to be the Messiah. The issue is they're Jews. And according to the Old Testament, cursed by God is anyone who hangs on a tree. That's crucifixion. What they're thinking in this moment, they hear Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what they think. God's turned his back on him. Whatever we thought he was, he obviously wasn't. The religious leaders are right. Liar, heretic, blasphemer, child of the devil. They're not going to go and steal his body to perpetuate a lie when in their mind, this one, Jesus, who they'd been following, was cursed by God, had been disowned by God. What they're doing is they're trying to put the, the pieces back together of three years of wasting their life with him. If you have intellectual objections, I would encourage you to investigate. I would love to talk with you. I'm a terrible salesman. I'm not going to talk you into anything. But I would love the chance to talk with you, or I can connect you with somebody. There's tons of resources out there to do that. For many of you, it's not intellectual at all. It has nothing to do with your mind and everything to do with your heart. You have personal um, objections to Jesus or to the faith. I went to college with a guy. He and I were, we graduated from high school together. We lived together in college. And I, he, was a, he was a believer. And I remember, I think it was um, towards the end of our sophomore year in college, we were out on a porch and he said, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. And I said, why? He said, my dad has his list in his Bible. And it's, got a, it's all these people's names. And he puts a check mark once they say yes to Jesus, once they become Christian. There's no check mark next to my granddad's name, and he's dead. And I'm not going if he's not there. I can't imagine a God who would allow slash send my granddad to hell. So I'm out. His issue has nothing to do with, is the Bible true? Did Jesus, was Jesus raised from the dead? Not his, it's all heart for him. Much more significant, and I think much more common. If that's you this morning, and you have personal objections to the faith, you don't necessarily need to investigate those, but you need to excavate them. You need to bring them up here and name them and say, this is my issue. It very well may be that the reason it's difficult for you to say yes to Jesus is because of the church, because of Christians who at some point either wronged you in some way, significantly caused pain to you in some way, either inadvertently or not, they've wounded you. And so you said, listen, if that's what it looks like to follow him, then I'm out. You've heard the phrase, cutting off your nose to spite your face. That's what you're doing. What you're doing is you're missing out on Jesus because we stink. Don't do that. It's not worth it. Most important question, who do you say that I am? Don't take your toys and go home. Don't resist. Don't, don't give in to that and say, listen, the church is, not, is full of hypocrites. Okay, it is. The church has committed atrocities. Okay, we have. None of that changes the fact that Jesus is who he said he was, and you don't want to miss that. For many of us, it's much more personal. She died, and I was praying for her to be healed. I wanted this, and you didn't come through. Where were you when this happened? It's very raw for us. And my encouragement to you is to bring that up and then give God an opportunity to meet you there. Say, you let me down here. I was banking on this then. I expected you to do, and you didn't. I don't get it. I don't get it for people who never hear. I don't get it why she wasn't healed. Whatever those things are, bring those things up, name them, and then give him an opportunity to meet you 
in that. My encouragement to you is to press into your skepticism versus resigning yourself to it. For the rest of us, you said yes, you're in. Resurrection has lots of implications for us. One, it confirms Jesus' identity. 1932 World Series, Babe Ruth, fifth inning, strike one, strike two. And then he does that. That's an excellent picture, super sharp, clarity, no digital photography in 1932. Best I could do. That's Babe Ruth pointing to center field. The next pitch, he crushes. 400 and something feet, home run, right where he pointed to it. Kind of adds to the legend of Babe Ruth. He called his own shot. Pretty bold. Jesus did something just like that, only better. Matthew 20, he says this, We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That happened. Remember that? Judas betrayed him. They will condemn him to death. They did that. Remember, the chief priest ripped his clothes and said, He's a blasphemer. He deserves to die. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles. Check. They gave him to Pilate and the Roman soldiers. He'll be mocked. The Roman soldiers, they dressed him up in a robe, put a crown of thorns on his head, pretended to worship him. They flogged him. They beat him with that whip. And they crucified him. On the third day, he will be raised to life. He called his own shot. Nobody does that. What Jesus says is, I'm not a typical Messiah. He says this to the disciples. I'm asking you for to, invest, to invest everything in me, to trust me with all of your life. And I don't look like you thought I would. I didn't come riding in on a white horse. I don't have the pedigree of a religious scholar. Actually, all the religious people are telling you that I'm a heretic and a blasphemer and a child of the devil. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set the bar so high. I'm going to create this litmus test that's so difficult to pass that when I do, then you'll know. And here it is. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be condemned to death. I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be crucified, and then the kicker, I'm going to come back three days later. And when that happens, when I've cleared that bar, then you'll know I am who I said I was. The resurrection confirms Jesus' identity for us. 120 billion people have lived over the course of history. One guy out of 120 billion has done that. Only him, nobody else. No one, any other religious teacher, any other philosopher, philosopher, any other miracle worker, it doesn't matter. No one else has ever done this. No one has ever said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to die in this way, and then three days later, I'm coming back to life. It confirms his identity to us as the Son of God. His resurrection also confirms that we've been forgiven. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins, was raised to life for our justification. 1 Corinthians 15.17 if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Jesus didn't die as a martyr. He died as a savior. There's a huge difference between those two. He said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. His resurrection showed that the check cleared. If all he said was, I'm going to die as, to give my life as a ransom for many, and he stayed dead, then we say, that's a nice sentiment. And that's all we've got. Paul says there, we just read in 1 Corinthians, if he wasn't raised from the dead, then we're still in our sins. It's futile to put our faith in him, just like it's futile to put our faith in anyone else who's died. The most we can say is he's a great guy. He had a good idea, a nice plan, a big heart. It means nothing to us in terms of our relationship with God. Jesus didn't die for a cause. He died for you and me. 
He died to reconcile us to God, to deal with the major issue that keeps us from relating to God, which is our own sinfulness. His resurrection shows that that was dealt with, that that condition, our sinfulness, was taken care of, that the debt that we owe was paid. Apart from that, we've got nothing. Your faith is not in the cross, it's in the resurrection of Jesus. Again, without the resurrection, the most we can say is the cross was a nice gesture by him. But it didn't amount to much. The, crucif- the resurrection confirms who Jesus is as the Son of God, the Messiah sent by God to make everything right. The crucifixion, or the resurrection, excuse me, confirms that our sins are forgiven. And it also confirms that all of, G- all of God's enemies, including death, have been taken care of. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, that's Jesus, triumphing over them by the cross. It's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Again, so if you can picture death as a person. So this is, he's the king enemy. He's number one, top of the heap. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he's the last enemy to be destroyed. When Jesus rises from the dead, it's because he beat death. And in beating death, he he beat sin. The sting of which is death. He beat Satan, who uses sin... As a tool. His resurrection shows that he defeated all of God's enemies. If he's still dead, then there's someone or something stronger than him. But in conquering death, he showed that there's nothing stronger than him. We say what? That little phrase. There's death and taxes. Those are the two things that we all can count on. He said, give to Caesar whatever he owes. And then he beat death. So you don't have to worry about either one of them. That's where we're standing He beat all of the enemies of God. There's this interesting passage, Revelation 5, you're there. So John has a vision. He's one of the 12 disciples. He's exiled on this island called Patmos. He's old. He has a vision. That's what Revelation is. He's in the throne room of God. He sees God on the throne. And there are these 24 elders, these heavenly beings who are worshiping God. And then there's this scroll. And the scroll has seven seals, these seven wax seals on it that are holding the scroll together. And John's upset, says he's weeping because there's no one who can open the scroll and he wants to know what's written on it. He says there's no one worthy to open it. It holds the key to history and there's no one who can open it. And he's upset about that. And one of the elders says this to him, starting in verse 5. Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. So what the elder says is, don't worry, John. See, there's the lion. He can open it. Then John says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Interesting. From heaven's perspective, Jesus is a lion. He's this conquering king who's establishing God's kingdom on the earth. Heaven doesn't need a savior. They're looking for somebody to make things right. They're looking for a king who will conquer God's enemies. Jesus is the one. John, when he looks at this lion, sees a lamb. Why? John's a man and he needs a savior. He needs someone who'll die in his place. The same man, Jesus, is both the conquering king and this sacrificial lamb. He makes things right and he makes us right with God. The resurrection confirms that he's both of those things. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is this lion who's coming on God's behalf. 
to establish God's kingdom of righteousness on the earth. And he is this lamb who was slain for us, who pays our debt so we can be reconciled to God. And the resurrection kind of puts a stamp on all that and says you can trust it. Because there have been 120 billion people who've lived and there's only one guy who ever said, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to die in this way and three days later I'm coming back and make good on it. Separates him from everyone else in a class by himself, not just as a man, but as the son of God. We're going to close with this. Don't get excited. It's a long closing. (laughs) Resurrection confirms that God makes things right. That's where I want us to stick. God makes things right. Here's Jesus' mission statement. Some of you have mission statements for your companies or maybe for yourself or your family. Here's Jesus's. He's in a synagogue in Nazareth. That's his hometown. He says this. Unrolling this scroll of Isaiah, he found the place where it's written. So he's looking for this particular passage. Intentional in what he's saying. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the congregation, the synagogue, excuse me, were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus is saying is, that's me. One more time. Spirit of the Lord's on me because he's anointed me to do what? Here's my mission. I'm going to proclaim good news to the poor who are overlooked. I'm going to proclaim freedom for prisoners who are in captivity, recovery of sight for the blind who can't see. I'm going to set the oppressed free, and I'm going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's his mission statement. That's what he came to do. The resurrection says, yes, he was was on point. He did what he came to do. Again, the resurrection validates everything Jesus said and did and who he is. So what it says to us is, yeah, he was right. That was his mission, to make Everything right. Revelation 21. This is where all of history is headed. I saw a new heaven. This is John again. A new earth. First heaven, first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Listen to this part. He'll wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There's that idea of making everything new. No more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said, it's done. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost, from the spring of the, wa- of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. I'll be their God, and they will be my children. So we have the resurrection that says yes to Jesus' mission statement. This is what he came to do. We have the resurrection that says there's no enemy who can stop him from accomplishing his purpose, which we see in Revelation 21. That's where everything is headed. You want to know what the future holds, read Revelation 21 and 22. That's it. That's where all of history is headed, and there's no one who can stop it. He's already defeated every enemy. That's what the resurrection shows us. He's already defeated sin, he's already defeated Satan, and he's already defeated death. Who's left? No one. So that's where everything is moving, and so I can stand up here and confidently say to you, 
He makes everything new. He makes everything right. The issue for us is He doesn't make everything right right now. We live in this weird time between His first appearance and His second appearance. And it's difficult for us. Old Testament, we see the story of Joseph. Y'all remember, maybe he's the 11th of 12 sons of Jacob. He's the favorite son. His dad, Jacob, makes him a coat because he's his favorite son. That, on parenting tip, don't do that. Don't point out who your favorite is, even if you have one. Not helpful. So, Jacob does that for Joseph. So everybody, And he doesn't even make him work. He's his favorite son, and he doesn't make him work. And then Joseph, maybe a little on the cocky side, probably 17 years old, he has a dream. In his dream... All of his brothers bow down to him. Now remember, he's 11th of 12. He's got 10 older brothers. So those of you who have older siblings, how does that play? When you go and tell them, hey, I had this dream and y'all are all going to bow down to me. You show them how to bow down real quick, don't you? I mean, that doesn't... Then he has another one and his siblings and his parents bow down to him. Again, he tells everybody. You can just probably would have been smarter to sit on that. But he tells them. He's not working. He's got the coat. And he tells everybody, you're going to bow down to me. Three strikes. And the older brothers, at some point, they just, they're sick of him. And they say, we've got to get rid of this guy. And so some of them want to kill him. His oldest brother doesn't want to do that. And there's another brother who's also trying to mediate. But they don't. there's massive miscommunication. They throw him in a cistern. And then they don't know what to do with him. So they sell him to this group. These Midianites who are walking through. Let's just get rid of him. So they sell him to these Midianites. Who then sell him to this guy named Potiphar who's in Egypt. And, and Joseph starts running Potiphar's house, and he's awesome at it. Excellent. The Bible says Potiphar doesn't have to worry about anything because Joseph is such a good administrator and manager of his estate. Joseph's a good-looking guy. Potiphar's got a wife. In time, Potiphar's wife starts looking at Joseph, and he says, Listen, that's no. I get everything in this house except you. I'm not going to do that. And at one point, she becomes pretty aggressive. She reaches for him, grabs his coat. He gets away. She's humiliated. So she says when her husband comes home, this Hebrew who you put here, he tried to make a fool of me. Potiphar goes through the roof and he throws Joseph in this Egyptian jail. So now he's in jail, falsely accused of assaulting Potiphar's wife. There's not like there's a criminal system. He's got, he's got nothing. He's pretty much rotting in jail unless somebody has mercy on him and pulls him out. There's a cupbearer and a baker in jail. And they each have dreams. And they're, they're frustrated because they don't know what their dreams mean. And Joseph says, here, I'll, I'll explain it to you. I'm connected to the God of heaven and he can interpret dreams. So he says to the cupbearer, you're going to be restored in three days. And he says to the baker, sorry, you're going to get your head chopped off in three days. And that's what happens. Both of those things play. And he says to the cupbearer, you've got to remember me when you get out of here. I shouldn't be here. And the cupbearer gets out of there and promptly forgets him. He languishes in jail for a couple of years. Pharaoh has a dream. And is disturbed. Very, uh, very vivid, very graphic dream. And he, can't, he doesn't understand it. Nobody can interpret it. And the cupbearer says, oh yeah, I know this guy. He's in jail. He interpreted for me and the baker and he drilled it. And Pharaoh says, bring him. So they bring Joseph up. Pharaoh said, here's the dream. And Joseph says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years where there's a ton of food. Then you're going to have seven years where there's none. And so you've got to prepare for the famine. And what Pharaoh says is, how about this? Why don't you prepare for the famine? He takes him from jail to second in command of Egypt, which is the dominant superpower of the day. Think about that. From down here in jail to second in command of 
the dominant superpower of the day, just like that, because he interprets this dream for Pharaoh. Thirteen years of him going in this direction, then God intervenes, does a 180, makes everything right, just like that. This is what Joseph says when he, find, when he uh, runs into his brothers a couple of years later. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. There's this idea that you'll see in the, in the Bible. You see it in people's stories in the Old Testament. You see it stated very explicitly in the New Testament that God makes things right. He makes things new. Again, the issue for us is He doesn't always make them right right now. We live in this murky time between Jesus' first appearing and His, se- and his second appearing. Any of y'all... Um, Y'all, anybody participated in a blowout in sports? Y'all have done that before, right? You've been on one end or the other of that. We have four kids who play soccer. I was at a game with our youngest. They don't keep score. We keep score. It's 21 to 2 at the, towards the end of, I'm not joking, towards the end of this game. Our guys are getting their tails kicked in. And they're, Ty, Ty, he's ours. He says, he scores. He says, can we go home now? I scored. That's the mentality of the team. We're pulling our hair out, and they're just, you know, whatever they're doing. So, we're game's supposed to start at 9, we start late. We start at 9.15, so the game's supposed to be over at 10, so the younger kids can come out. And so it's 10, and I'm thinking, mercy, we're done. And our coach, who's wonderful, she comes to church here, so make sure I say that. She's wonderful. And she says, no, we still have an extra quarter to play. And I'm like, cut. It's 21 to 2. Let us go. And she no, let's play. The kids are having fun. The parents are not having fun. The kids are having fun. And so we play. This next 12 or 15 minutes, it winds up being 21 to 3. That's where we're living. We're living in this time where the outcome is 100% determined. God wins. But we've still got to play out the clock. And when you're playing out the clock, it still counts. The other team can still score and you can still get hurt. All of those things, it's still real. Even though the outcome is 100% determined, God wins. Revelation 21 and 22, lock it up. But we're still living in this time. There's still time on the clock, and we've got to play, and the enemy can still score, and it's real. And And we can still get hurt, and it's real. We live in this time between the first and the second coming of Jesus, where the enemy is defeated, but he's not destroyed. Where we're saved, but we're not perfected. We continue to wrestle with our own sinful nature in our flesh. Where the curse has been broken, but creation is still fallen. Where the kingdom of God, we can, we can taste it. It's breaking in. We can experience the kingdom of God, but it's not fully here yet. And so when I say with 100% confidence, God makes things right. I can't with any degree of confidence. Say he's going to make it right right now. I know he has every ability to do that, but there are times when he doesn't. I know ultimately he will. We just read where everything is headed. There's no mourning, there's no death, there's no pain, there's no crying. He's going to make it right. But for us, we live in the right now. Why isn't he making it right right now? I don't know what the things you struggle with are. I can get my mind kind of theologically around just about all bad things. Illnesses and birth defects and violence and accidents. All of those things I can kind of put under this category of 
We live in a fallen world and we have an enemy who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. But for whatever reason, the two that get me are people who are single and want to be married. Like, I don't get. Like, that to me is not hard. God, get them together. Just do that. I don't get why. I don't get it. Why some people feel like they're languishing in their singleness. They love God and their desire is to be married. And for me, that's how hard can it be? God, put them together. And the other one for me is people who are married and want to have kids and can't. I don't get that either. Be fruitful and multiply. We have a couple here who loves you and all they want to do is have kids. In the Old Testament, we see it with Sarah. We see it with Hannah. It's not like flip the switch. Make it work. I don't get either of those two. I've not experienced either of them, but for some reason those are the ones that are so difficult for me living between this first and this second appearance. It's hard for me sometimes to look people in the face and say, who are wrestling with either of those issues, and say, God's going to make it right. I know He's going to make it right. I just don't know if He's going to make it right right now. That's a difficult thing to say to someone, and that's even more difficult to live in the midst of that tension. I don't know what the issues are for you. That video, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. For some of you, it's Friday for you. Everything is being stripped away. Some of you, it's Saturday. You're just waiting. You're not actively experiencing pain or loss, but it's just dark. It's silent. You're not getting anything. And what I would say to you, is there any way for you to hold on to hope that Sunday is coming? We live again in this weird time, and what we want to say is, God, just fix it now. And what he says is no. Because when he fixes it permanently, when he comes again, then the, the door's closed. There's no room, there's no more opportunity for others to say yes to him. His desire is for all men and women to come to a knowledge of the truth, to understand him as their Savior, to say yes to him as the Lord. And as long as we live in between the first and second comings, we got a chance. There's a chance for more people He's the good shepherd, remember? He's got 99 and they're safe, so he leaves them to go after the one who's wandering away. Many of you in the room, y'all are the 99. You said yes to him, you're in the fold, you're safe. And what he's saying, he doesn't love them more, he just needs them to have an opportunity to say yes to him. He came to seek and save that which is lost. And once you're found, you're no longer lost. And so what he says to us at times is, hey, I'm going to leave you for a second. I'm going after them. And so you're going to live in between my first and my second coming. Because when I come back, all of the people who are lost and wandering, they won't have another opportunity. It's done for them. The door will be closed. They can't say yes any longer. And so for those of us who are part of the 99, we live in the midst of this chaos. And we're not martyrs. We're not heroes. It's none of that. Just a recognition, I want you to hear what's going on and see what's going on. It's not that God is, is punishing you. He's not disciplining you. He's not judging you. What he's saying is, I'm leaving conditions open because I'm more concerned about the ones who are lost. I've got to go get them. And once I fix everything permanently and finally here, then there's no chance for me to go get them anymore. And I'm not willing to do that yet. So that's where we're living in between this first and second coming. If you're the one, throw up a hand. Help me. Best prayer in the Bible. Help me. And he'll come to your rescue. It doesn't have to be any more specific than that. If you're part of the 99, 
it's Friday or Saturday for you. You're either being stripped of things and you're dying. Or it's, you're, it's just blank. It's just dark. It's silent. This morning, what I want you to hear, the resurrection, encouragement, Sunday is coming. He's going to make it all right. He's going to fix all of it. He'll fix some of it on this side. He's going to make sure all of it's fixed on the other side. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's difficult to continue to re-up with God when you feel frustrated or disappointed, when you continue to ask and nothing's happening. My encouragement to you, again, on Easter Sunday, He did get up. He rose from the grave. That confirms He's going to make it all right. Can you stay engaged with Him in faith? That's trusting who He is and hope. That's believing for better circumstances. Can you hang in on both of those areas? If you shut down some area of your life, leading up to the day that's just too difficult for you to continue to say, Sunday's coming. You've just shut it off and said, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. I'm done. It's easier for me to put it aside and to move ahead, leaving that behind. Would you be willing this morning to go back and open the door and say, it's Easter, and I'm going to believe that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is still at work, and He can make everything new. In my life. Let's pray. Father, it is Easter and we do thank you for the life and the death and the resurrection of your son. We thank you for everything that it means. We thank you that it means that we can trust that he is who he says he is. And God, I pray for any here today who are wrestling over that question. If you were to say to them, who do you say that I am? There's no answer yet. God, I pray that over these next several days and weeks, that they would press into that skepticism, they press into that point of confusion, and that you would meet them in that, in a way that they would understand, that you would begin to reveal yourself to them as a good father who desires to draw them into a relationship with you. God, I pray for those who are already, you've already said yes. They're already in the fold. They're part of the 99. God, we thank you that the resurrection of your son confirms that not only are we forgiven, not only have your enemies been defeated, but you're going to make everything new. And so I want to pray for those who are wrestling this morning. It's Friday or Saturday in their life. They're either currently being stripped That's already happened, and they're just sitting in the dark saying, what's next? God, would you intervene on their behalf? Would you speak to them this morning in a way that they would understand, encouraging them to believe you again, to place their hope in you again, to trust and engage with you again in those areas? God, we 100% want to see circumstances changed. We want to see bodies healed. We want to see chains broken. We want to see provision, salvation. God, we want to see these things 100%. We want to believe you as the God who makes all things right. And we want to hang with you when you're not making it right right now. So give us grace in these few moments, God, to respond to you, to meet with you, to be ministered to by you in your name. Amen.
That's how we're going to close up ministry teams.